Hi, this is Bryce from Shanghai John. The following episode was recorded on February 8th, 2022, and features Julian Lobka. The title was "Evolving from KOLs to Chinese Influencer Groups." It was our number one downloaded episode in season one, and Ali and I thought it would be worth a repeat visit. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can learn more about Shanghai Zhan at our website, Ali, at zhanstation.com. That's Z-H-A-N Station.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai. I'm Bryce Whitwan, and I'm Ali Kazmi. In today's episode, Ali, we have cultural insights expert Julian Labka, founder of Agency Inner Chapter, an agency dedicated to transforming cultural insights, turning them into commercial IP. Working with both visionary startups as well as established companies, he's also the co-founder of a speakeasy, Revolving Door, where we are sitting right now at this point at the Revolving Door. It's located near Shintendi. How, how many times do you get a chance to walk through a coffee shop, open up a door, walk up a staircase, and seat yourself in one of the most comfortable sofas in Shanghai? You're right. This doesn't happen very often. And I should also point out. That today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Campaign Asia, and we remind everyone that if you like the show, please give us a five-star review on your favorite platform, Apple Podcast or Spotify. They both have places to leave your reviews. I feel like a DD driver here. Get well, ping fun na, how about? So, Julian, we love the venue and space, and thank you for hosting us. Never thought we'd ever be pouring ourselves a drink this early on a Saturday. Uh, tell us more about where we are and what's the revolving door about. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the、uh, on the podcast.、Uh, I'm really looking forward to a great conversation this afternoon.、Uh, I mean, the story about revolving door is、uh, is, is a pretty easy one. I think、uh, the minute you've spent a lot of time as a consultant,、uh, you're constantly thinking about pretty abstract、uh, things like brand culture. At some point, it's actually nice to be able to get into something that's a bit more real, so to speak.、Uh, whether it's you know making sure that、uh, customers have Uh, their drinks come on time.、Uh, ice is、uh, ice is plenty. Beers have been、uh, have been filled. All of that is is actually a nice break from the from the mental work. So that's uh, uh, that was one of the reasons for opening it up. And revolving door. I mean, Shanghai is the ultimate revolving door, right? You've got、uh, people from、uh, all over the world that come and come and go. You've got、uh, increasingly a lot of、uh, people from、uh, all over China after graduating. Uh, they come in and look for work, and everybody feels a little bit、uh, lost. So this is a bit of a, a safe haven and a bit of a counter to、uh, to the coming and goings of people in Shanghai. And could you give us an example of something that would you would see as conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom of an insight or a common belief that stems from a tier one type of city or a, a market that that people generally have that. Common association, but the reality is the majority of Chinese outside of the major cities don't think that way. Can you give a a good example of something, or or possibly a a brand or an advertisement that you saw that was completely off the mark? Yeah, sure. So I mean, there's、uh, a, a lot of times when we get briefs around we need to develop a new 
a new brand or we need to refresh a brand, there's always these notions of creativity and you know, rebelliousness or something around going against the grain. I mean, we see that time and time and time again, and people are constantly associating, you know, this notion that you know, people want to be individualistic. People want to showcase who who they are. Again, that is something that's very, very first here or very sort of Shanghainese or not just not just to pick on the Shanghainese, but just a, a well off segment of of society. You know, if you are living in, in some of these lower tier cities, what you're actually trying to do is kind of stay afloat. Uh, and this is this is increasingly true. So you've seen in the past couple of years, really, it's been very difficult to to find work if you're a, a fresh graduate. This is the first time in a couple of decades that really top grads cannot find the right work at the right um, salary. When you go into these some of these bigger cities, paying rent, monthly expenses are so high that for this younger generation of people, being creative is, it's just, it's such a luxury. That is not what they are thinking about. They need to figure out, how can I make ends meet? What's the kind of job that will give me a certain set of security so that I can make it through? And actually what we're, what we're seeing is, there's been a tremendous influx of people actually going back to finding government jobs, people that are uh, looking towards the SOEs. Now, of course, the cynic, you know, can say, oh, well, if you go work for the government, you've got relationships and that's the, you know, your roads to riches. Member, yeah. uh, I think that's quite a cynical view. I think they're, they're you know, the sort of the, the view that we're sort of getting from a lot of people is that it does represent a certain um, stability as people mm. try to it's figure out It's a job for next. life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, potentially a job for life. Yeah, that sense of stability, especially in a smaller city, is, is really important. And maybe it's not necessarily Tanping, but it's more about th there is a certain amount of time I want to dedicate to work and then there's certain amount of time I want to dedicate to my family and to doing other creative pursuits. No, I think you're I think you're right. There is I think those two trends are happening concurrently. Um, mm. So I think the the idea of one thing that's that's sure is the idea of working for an international Fortune 500 company. That is something that is no longer very aspirational. That's correct. Part, you know, part of that is, uh, again, salaries have not kept up with um, inflation. inflation, right? So if you're, again, if you're very a smart grad, even sort of middle, you know, middle managers that are working for some of these international companies, you, you'll just never be able to afford rent uh, in in the city center and still have to, and yeah. still have money to you know, to spend on, on other lives, um, little luxuries, right? So people are very much revisiting uh, where time is spent and how money is, is spent as well. Correct. It's interesting that you mentioned the knowledge gap because one time I asked my students at NYU, what's the average annual salary for a Chinese family? And they were off by five times. Obviously, they went high. A lot of my students obviously paying NYU tuition, they, they can afford to, to go there. But I just was surprised how little that they knew themselves about, about, about China. And the reality is that there's only a very small percentage of people that make 150, 200,000, 300,000 a year. The average salary in China is 37,000 renminbi per year. No, I'm absolutely. And actually, it's, it starts to translate even in, in the way that 
people think about brands and the type of brands that they're that they're attracted to. So I think a couple of things. One, you've got a generation that's been completely sheltered from any economic downturn, right? Even even during the uh, the financial crisis of two thousand and uh, and eight, there was a bit of a hiccup, but the the government really spent its way out of any any major issues. So on the one hand, you've got people that don't don't necessarily understand what a recession could be, uh, what hardship is. Whilst on the other hand, and actually the ones that that don't quite uh, that haven't been through a through a hardship, those are the ones that are actually often in uh, in positions of of power and driving marketing, driving some of these. You know, who should we be speaking to? How do we develop the the messaging? Whilst on the other hand, you've got this new generation again that is kind of struggling to figure out, you know, what are we going to be doing next? And actually, we see that quite interestingly in the types of brands and the types of messaging that some of this younger generation is into. Mm. Give you a couple of examples. Uh, Anything that has a real sense of irony, irreverence, and uh, and escapism actually works really, really well for this younger generation. We were recently doing um, a piece for, uh, for a jewelry company uh, and one of the things that we were, we were looking to understand is where does imagination and the imaginary take you and why is that important? And people started talking about space and space not in a very nationalistic way. So this was not your, you know, your Cold War, Star Wars kind of uh, good versus evil. We need to win the, the space race. For them, space represents a place where there are no barriers, where they can completely explore and shape and shift their own identity. It's a place of complete freedom and escapism. Same thing for brands like uh, Balenciaga, who actually has often quite a dystopic uh, element in their you know, advertising. That's something that people here are increasingly attracted to because it, again, it offers that that sense of escape. It's the same reason why gaming is, you know, it's now the number one pastime. That is entertainment. It is no longer K-pop, C-pop, any sort of something dash pop. It's gaming because again, it's 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 a way to to escape some of the some of the daily realities that you know that are quite uh, that are increasingly difficult. You mentioned that you used to go out a lot into the field to do your insight hunting. How, how do you do it now? Is it, do you still do that or is there a different way to do it? You know what? We've over the last 20 years, we've seen everything from the rise of mobile phone focus groups to, you know, uh, big data science uh, teams being developed by by clients and kind of everything in, in between. And obviously, the rise of sort of certain technologies can facilitate research, can can facilitate certain methodologies, make things more convenient. I mean, God knows during COVID and when you can't really travel to, you know, having the ability to to gather people around Zoom and have a discussion is, you know, is great. But to be honest, it it nothing ever changes the the richness that you get from going into somebody's home meeting their friends meeting their parents seeing the items that they have at home seeing the items that they have in their fridge that sort of first-hand understanding is still something that is impossible to to replicate really so that's still something that we do uh quite 
quite a bit of um, through to actually uh, not just from the people point of view, but, you know, whenever we have clients that have uh, a certain uh, whether a retail experience or something that's more experiential as part of their brand, we will go there and, and work uh, in uh, inside their their brand. So we worked at Starbucks for uh, for for a couple of days, did, did the same thing with uh, with Disney, where we're, you know, you're really trying to get more of a, a firsthand sense as to how people are interacting with the space, interacting with uh, with the product. So that face-to-face element is very, very important still, of course. Do you still do, are you still doing house visits? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, uh, that, that's something that, uh, again, you know, if you ask somebody about, you know, their diets, for example, what are you, what are you eating? And, and if you were to do it in, in the course of a, of a focus group, for example, they'd say, oh yeah, of course I eat very healthy. Uh, you know, it's important to get your, you know, your vegetables and your sort of fruits and all that. But of course, if you go into their house and you open the, you know, the cupboard and the fridge, you'll see loads of potato chips and sort of all sorts of um, nasty things in there, right? Well, and, you've been to my home. <laughs> <laughs> and that's perfectly normal, right? Human yeah. beings are not, you know, are far from, from perfect and people are, you know, walking contradictions. That's, that's perfectly fine. But, you know, being able to, you know, to poke around in, in people's lives and just kind of, using the context but that's to, where the opportunity <clears throat> is right so then when you find or when you discover that potato a pack of potato chips in someone's refrigerator that's where the insight is that's when you ask the why and that's when they unpack it's the reasoning behind some of our listeners that don't really necessarily understand the connection between an insight this reference to potato chips i think is a great one but trying to attach that back to a health product what what's the course you know you would latch onto that insight and translate it into an opportunity for a brand from a pretty recent project that we were we were doing, we're studying the uh, uh, the brief was essentially what is the future of health in China, which is a pretty uh, broad, uh, very very broad question, right? And uh, as we're speaking with this one particular woman in in Guangzhou, uh, we saw that she had she had about twelve different types of uh, of teas displayed and so we started talking about you know what are you have different occasions where you're where you're drinking this tea and she kind of looked at us funny and she said what do you mean drinking the tea like well it's tea you're you're, you drink it no and she's like no no no, absolutely not what i do is i have gone to my tea seller and i've asked my tea seller what are the different levels of antioxidants and calming agents within these different teas and what she does, she soaks the tea, she puts it between two towels, and after she goes for skincare treatments, so laser treatments, she will apply that wet towel with the tea, tea leaves in it to calm the skin down, right? And so that's something that you would never be able to, to get if you wouldn't have gone to somebody's home and go, okay, we're talking about health, let's talk about tea, and then that person, you know, and you sort of start having a conversation around, you know, what could be a very mundane uh, item. But as the conversation develops, you obviously find that there's uh, a lot of different things. And so through that conversation, we began to understand that, uh, you know, there's a huge, huge market in, in China for sort of post-surgery, uh, post-treatment recovery. care and recovery. Mm-hmm. And it all started by asking, do you drink your tea? I can totally imagine, you know, not being able to captured that type of insight through social listening or through data science or through taxonomy or through any type of 
panel-based research because that question would never exist. No, you're absolutely right. The problem with data is, well, it's not that it's a problem with data. It's people misuse data. When a lot of this social listening and sales data became available to clients, people thought, okay, well, this is, this is great. We write an algorithm, let the, let the machines do the work and outcomes an answer. With data, all that you're looking at is past behavior. You're not actually looking at what can happen next. You're not really looking at what are the future possibilities, right? There's a lot of talk in the press, uh, especially given the whole Western versus China foreign brands uh, in China, the Guotao, uh, local brands. The reality is that foreign, foreign brands don't understand China as well as the Chinese brands do. I think that there's a lot of nonsense in that, to be honest. Like a lot of the, you know, the Chinese brands, the categories that they do very well in is, are often those that don't necessarily necessitate a lot of high technology or a lot of, you know, high R&D spend. So things like fashion, right? Uh, there, there's been an amazing set of um, streetwear brands that have that have come up all from China. Now, if you think about, you know, streetwear brands, that is those are brands that will have always emanated from a very, very specific hyper localized culture. I mean, just look at Vans or Supreme. They were of a neighborhood. They were of a time and and place. And so for brands like that, of course, Chinese will buy Chinese brands because it reflects their language, often their, you know, local dialects. You've seen a a huge rise as well in Shanghainese brands, Xianese brands, Chengdu brands, brands that are, you know, very much playing up local aesthetics, local dialect. And so for those kinds of uh, brands, of course, there, there, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pull for for consumers. It's in categories that, you know, do necessitate quite a bit of R&D, whether it's, you know, technology or sort of cars, uh, you know, that's when, you know, Chinese are, are not nationalistic. Pe people just want to buy the best product out there, you know, full stop. I don't think that we're, we're definitely not seeing a, a trend where people are saying, you know what, you're a foreign brand. You're probably a bit better than the Chinese one. Let me get the Chinese one. That's, you know, that's not happening. I think Chinese brands have a tremendous advantage, largely due to, to their, you know, to the fact that from a manufacturing point of view, they can churn things around very, very quickly. And that's, you know, and that's a great advantage that, you know, that they're, uh, that they're leveraging. Do you have any favorite Chinese brands? Um, I, I really like Haiti as a brand. And, and the reason I, I really like Haiti is they're absolute masters. What is Haiti for the people that don't know? Right. So Haiti is uh, a tea brand and they've essentially grown from doing bubble teas, tea flavored drinks. Uh, and they've now become this, the best comparison would be they're as big as Starbucks. They're found absolutely everywhere. And now they do everything from sort of tea flavored drinks through to sort of fruit flavored flavor, sodas yeah. and sort of coffee flavored drinks and everything in, in between. And they, they recently did a collaboration with a, with a cocktail bar in, uh, in Guangzhou. This cocktail bar is quite, quite famous. And for such a large corporation, to do a one-week collaboration where they developed for that week drinks only to be sold at one venue is amazing, right? So, like, think think of would Starbucks in the context of 
of the U.S. go to one New York bar and said, you know what, we're just going to work with you for a week and we will use our menu development kitchen to come up with drinks. No, of course they, they wouldn't. They, they just they would never do that. But the fact that a Haiti does that and they've done it with uh, photography clubs, they've done it with bars, they've done it with single restaurants. That to me is amazing because you're catering to a very specific audience. You're catering to people that will also amplify actually your your message right so in the context of you know that bar they've got a very very strong following and all of those people that you know showed up to buy the hey tea and it was hope and sesame is the name of the the bar everyone posted that on their on their wechat right so you're getting free media you're tapping into essentially passion communities that are amplifying this message and, and that to me is something that uh that is amazing to me. And uh, so Haiti is, is definitely a, a great, a great brand. My, my favorite beverage actually is one of their cake flavored <laughs> or actually it's got, it's got ground up cake or cookies in it. That's quite yummy and definitely not so good for the think belly. About, but, yeah, I think about 700 calories but, in that drink. Oh, totally, dude. But it's, it's delicious. It's delicious. It's cream. It, anyway, but what are your thoughts around the way Chinese brands are built versus um, you know, versus how we've been traditionally taught around brand development and brand building? That's a really good question. And, and I think regardless if you're a Chinese brand or a Western brand, I think increasingly the, the dynamics of, of building a brand that will last needs to be completely revisited. So obviously in the last couple of years, KOLs and you know I mean literally every brand has probably contacted or been in touch with Austin Lee you work with Austin Lee fine but you are in no way in control of what Austin Lee will say about your brand so it's fine it's absolutely fine if you want to build high awareness great use Austin Lee if you want to build a brand forget it right so the amount of times that we've had uh, across different categories clients come to us and say so we, we've had a tremendous first year and by year two, nobody's buying us anymore. Why, why is that? And you're like, well, because you've, you haven't built your brand. Nobody actually knows why, what it is that you're selling. Nobody actually knows what your brand stands for, right? But KOLs obviously still have a lot of power. So what do you, what do, you do? What do you do in, this, in these circumstances? Also, what do you do when a place like JD and Taobao directs so much attention of online shoppers. And so one of the things that we're, you know, that we're really keen on, on doing, and actually this is where, uh, when we're talking about how data isn't necessarily the answer, this is actually where we do use our, uh, our data science team to look at nodes of influence, but nodes of influence not in terms of KOL's people, but we actually think about spaces and places as new KOLs. So what I mean by that is, is there a, for example, a museum that attracts a very specific demographic? Is there, for example, the Chinese diaspora, 10 million people living outside of China, I think a quarter million living in, uh, in Tokyo, you've got X hundred thousands living in, in London, in some of these, you know, cities where fashion trends, food trends, uh, aesthetics trends are all born, right? So can you actually work with the Chinese Association at Cambridge or at NYU 
that are studying the arts, that are studying marketing, that are studying something, actually use them as a way to seed a brand, a foreign brand in this case, uh, so that they can become, you know, the culture, uh, the culture carriers. You know, as things are getting much, much more fragmented, rather than going to, to KOL, start working with grassroots organizations. This is something that actually Vans is, uh, is really, really good at, where you are sort of creating and building the infrastructure for these communities and interest groups to, to thrive in. So I think the, these are some of the ways that, you know, from a brand building perspective, it does take a little bit more time, but actually once it catches on, because you're dealing with people that have a common interest and a shared passion, they talk. And they they will be very happy to share information in terms of what they're what they're consuming. I think same thing with uh, the North Face, which is a brand we work with quite a bit. Hiking, camping, it is such a new hobby to get into, right? The fact that an outdoors brand, if you can create safe camping spots, if you can say uh, cater to women's needs when they're out in uh, in the wild, whether it's sort of safety or you know, specific uh, hygiene, uh, hygiene element, and you're building that infrastructure, that's how you will build uh, a brand. No. So I think, again, for us, it's uh, we, you know, work with passion communities, uh, try to think about places and spaces as points of influence and kind of build, build, the brand, uh, yeah. build the brand from there. There's a beverages company that I'm working on, and a lot of what you said today is, it's actually got a brand culture signature all over it. And I think it's the culture component that, that, that I think a lot of Chinese brands are missing. And, and to your point exactly, working with you know, creative communities or working with marketing communities or working with domestic brands or identifying people without even calling them influencers, just people that are grassroots. Yeah, I think it's just it's finding a, a specific segment that, that has a, a common purpose, a common objective. So and it, it doesn't necessarily always have to be because marketing, God knows, fetishizes uh, the cool, the art, design, all of that. So it doesn't have to, to always find a place in, in those areas. It can be something like, you know, makeup. The act of putting on makeup on a day-to-day -day basis is actually still relatively new. I mean, again, if you get out of Shanghai, the rest of China will look, you know, very, very different. Now, you've got graduates that are finding it very difficult to find work. What if a makeup company would say, any female graduate, we will teach you how to put on makeup that is suitable for, uh, for the workplace. We will also help you to, you know, to write... CVs and you sort of do a whole activation, but you're very much, you know, looking to to tap into a, a very specific time, place, and sort of cohort that has a, a deeper a deeper need, right? And again, it's about building that infrastructure. Would you think that for brands wanting to come to China, uh, marketing through communities is the right is the right tactic to do? Gone are the days, uh, twenty years ago, where you can buy a CCTV one spot, right? Like, forget it that's gonna no company can really afford that anymore so what you're you know what you're really looking to do is either go into a very specific cohort or actually just even pick a city and start you know and start from there so we get a lot of brands that want to showcase their sustainability credentials I mean that's always a huge uh, a huge question right when when are Chinese consumers going to buy into sustainability how much 
money should we spend on marketing this, you know, this side of it? And and of course, if you're going to put out a message through again, Aust- not to pick on Austin Lee, but on a, on one of these, you know, through some of these big KOLs, that message is going to get lost because you'll have everyone from your 60 year old IE through to university student that's going to be, you know, looking at that. So what you're much better off doing is saying, okay, well, what are some of the the interesting cohorts that could potentially be interested in this kind of lifestyle? So one of the things that we recently did, uh, we started looking at, uh, we try to triangulate data of people that buy organic food, people that are buying uh, a certain set of skincare that has clean beauty at the heart of it, so more sustainable ingredients, organic ingredients. And actually what we found is we traced it down that a lot of these people are actually going to Sanya and are part of the surf community, right? Now that is as specific as you can get. But once we started to to poke around a little bit more into that, we actually found that that through that surf community, that they've got links to hundreds of thousands of people spread across uh, affluent pockets of not just first tier cities, but actually second and third tier cities, right? So as an example, if you've, you've kind of, if you kind of have that, that understanding of China and sort of seeing how some of these values travel and where they travel to, you can literally set up shop in and around Sanya, work with that community, and all of a sudden they will do the amplification for you across China and much cheaper than, you know, trying to open up a a big flagship store on on, uh, Huai Hai Road. Have you done any work on menu adaptation? Because KFC is such a successful brand in this market and one of the reasons why it's held itself back or one of the reasons why McDonald's hasn't hasn't flourished, um, at least in my book of um, memories is is because of how quickly they were to adapt some of the menu items that they had. Yeah, I mean, part of so some of the work that we have have done was actually with um, flavors companies. So people like Jivadan, who who actually develop all of the flavorings for the McDonald's, the Yums, and sort of restaurants, right? And so one of the briefs that we had was, how do we think about spiciness in China? What is actually spiciness? mean and what can you actually ladder it up to is there a certain cohort is there a certain group of people that would think about spiciness a little bit differently right so what we did is we looked at the starting point was looking at different types of spices in in china so you had the the mala the numbing uh, numbing spice you had the the sour spice from uh, from guizhou and we essentially looked at all of these different types of spiciness and what we did, we developed um, different menu items. So we, we essentially developed different types of fried chicken flavorings using different different spices. And what we did is we tried to connect that with stories that people had from their childhood. So can you tell us about, you know, a numbing, a mala experience? Can you tell me about a like a more of a savory uh spicy like a more what i guess most people would understand just as a normal spiciness right and what was really interesting is that for some of the stories so for example for the savory spiciness people always had a memory of stress i mean it was absolutely incredible that people would associate a kind of savory spiciness with being overworked having gone through 
a breakup, just having something crap happen in their life. And then that specific type of spiciness was a great stress relief, right? And so you can, and so through understanding how people relate from childhood, if there's a, an element of nostalgia that you can sort of really tap into, then you can sort of really take some of these menu items to, you know, much more interesting presentations and link them to the right you know, type of uh, type of protein. Whereas, you know, to to finish off the the spicy story, the the sour spicy people would think about it as much more of a context of being on holiday. So whether it's because some of the um, the type of spices that you find, for example, in Thailand is more of that that type, uh, or places like Guizhou, where nobody really you know, works or sort of, uh, or studies, but you go there on holiday. So it's amazing how when you start to unlock and create those associations between different flavors, how you can then sort of push things a lot, um, a lot more. Julian, thanks a lot for being on the show today. It's been very insightful and interesting, uh, very fascinating. We really appreciate it. Pleasure, pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. And thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode. Join us next week for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a happy new year, 新年快乐, and have a great day.